Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to Synovus Energy's third quarter results conference call. As a reminder, today's call is being recorded. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session. You can join the queue at any time by pressing star one. Members of the investment community will have the opportunity to ask questions first. At the conclusion of that session, members of the media may then ask questions. Please be advised that this conference call may not be recorded or rebroadcast without the express consent of Synovus Energy. I would now like to turn the conference call over to Ms. Sherry Wentz, Director, Investor Relations. Please go ahead, Ms. Wentz. Thank you, Operator, and welcome everyone to our third quarter 2020 results conference call. Here with me is our President and Chief Executive Officer, Alex Porbet, our Chief Financial Officer, John McKenzie, our Executive Vice President Upstream, <coughs> Nori Ramsey, and our Executive Vice President Downstream, Keith Chesson. I refer you to the advisories located at the end of today's news release. These advisories describe the forward-looking information, non-GAAP measures, and oil and gas terms referred to today and outline the risk factors and assumptions relevant to this discussion. Additional information is available in our annual MD&A and our most recent annual information form and Form 40F. The quarterly results have been presented in Canadian dollars and on a before royalties basis. We have also posted our results on our website at synovus.com. Alex will provide brief comments and then we will turn to the Q&A portion of the call. Please go ahead, Alex. Thanks, Sherry, and good morning, everybody. As you know, on Sunday we announced a strategic combination between Synovus and Husky to create a resilient, integrated energy leader. This transaction optimizes our cost structure, expands our market access, and strengthens our balance sheet. It positions us as a more resilient company with increased and more stable free funds flow. It also gives us opportunities to expand margins across the value chain, lowering our break-even, and accelerating deleveraging and returns to shareholders. You have already seen us drive significant costs out of our business through corporate and operating optimizations. I'm extremely confident that we will achieve the goals we have set with the transaction and realize the potential of the combined company. But today I'm here to talk about our third quarter results. I want to start by giving credit to our staff at Synovus for keeping our operations running safely and reliably and for continuing to adapt to all the additional measures we've put in place in response to this pandemic. I continue to be impressed with the dedication of each and every one of our employees and how they continue to support each other through this time. Through all of this, our teams remain focused on delivering safe and reliable operating performance. We've had zero significant incidents across our operations to date in 2020. Our teams have successfully navigated the health and wellness challenges of the pandemic while increasing production and executing planned turnarounds at our two oil sands facilities, as well as in our conventional operations. As well, this quarter we saw some significant health and safety milestones across our operations. At Christina Lake, our drilling operations, as well as completions and well services teams, achieved one year without a recordable incident. And our conventional operations marked a one-year milestone since recording a significant process safety event. This third quarter once again demonstrated our flexibility and ability to utilize our full suite of assets to maximize the price received for every barrel. It reinforced our commitment to disciplined spending, maintaining our low operating and capital cost structure, and deleveraging our balance sheet. As crude oil prices showed signs of a gradual recovery through the summer, we were able to increase our crude oil production and clear our inventory of stored barrels to capitalize on the significantly improved benchmark price for Western Canadian Select. We continued purchasing low-cost production credits from peers so we could produce above our curtailment limit. 
that allowed us to produce high quarterly volumes at our Christina Lake facility. This increase was partially offset by planned turnaround and maintenance activities. Our oil sands operation this, this quarter averaged almost 386,000 barrels a day, up from 373,000 barrels a day in the previous quarter, and a 9% increase from the third quarter of 2019. We recorded adjusted funds flow of $414 million, which was a significant increase from the second quarter of 2020, when the unprecedented drop in oil prices resulted in adjusted funds flow of negative $462 million. And we generated free funds flow of $266 million in the third quarter and made meaningful progress on reducing our net debt. At the end of the third quarter, net debt declined to approximately $7.5 billion from $8.2 billion at the end of the second quarter of 2020. We had an operating loss of $452 million and a net loss of $194 million in the third quarter of 2020. The operating loss was largely due to an impairment charge of $450 million on the Borger refinery and negative operating margin from the refining and marketing segment. While we are pleased with our performance in this quarter, we expect commodity price volatility for the foreseeable future. That's why we look forward to the increased cash flow stability and enhanced free funds flow the transaction with Husky will provide. With that, I'm happy to take your questions. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, you can join the queue to ask a question by pressing star 1. We will now begin the question and answer session and go to the first caller. First question comes from Mino Holsoff with Team Security. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I have one question, and it's unrelated to the uh, to the Husky transaction. Maybe you could just give us your thoughts on the outlook for your SAGD operations over the uh, the near term, and, and more specifically, to, to the extent that WTI continues to trade in the mid 30s and the heavy differential, call it in the in the ten dollar range. Uh, what can we expect operationally through uh, year end, and maybe even early 2021? I'm assuming uh, dynamic uh, storage becomes a part of the conversation, but any thoughts on that front would be uh, would be helpful. Sure. Hey, Mano, it's Keith Chesson. Um, you know, I'll, I'll start, and maybe Nori can talk about the operational side of things. But when we look at uh, kind of the economics, you know, even in the mid thirty dollar WTI range and and the tight differential that we see, we, we still see ourselves as as variable cost net back positive. So. You know, we would anticipate to, to produce uh, through this time at uh, at full rates. Um, you know, as we look forward, obviously with curtailment ending in December, uh, we are unconstrained and no longer have to uh, have to acquire uh, production credits to be able to do so. So we, it's something that we watch uh, really closely uh, and monitor. And and because of the low cost nature of our production, uh, we're able to produce and, and generate. Uh, positive variable cost net back. And just to add to that, it's Nora Ramsey from our upstream business. Um, if you remember, um, in the second quarter, we actually curtailed our um, production in our all sands business by month on month, about 60,000 barrels a day. And it's some, in, in some days, it was actually down 80,000 barrels a day. Um, we brought that all back on, as you can see in our third quarter. It's 9% higher than our, our second quarter overall average production and we have full flexibility um, to increase that up to our um, higher levels um, and again curtailment was obviously limiting what we could do and once we, from December onwards we'll have a lot more flexibility but it is, it's always going to be a value conversation um, it's the value rather than the actual volume of production that we're, we're most interested in. Thanks Menno. Thank you. Next question comes from Greg Party with RBC Capital Markets. Yeah, thanks. Good morning. Uh, a couple for you. Maybe, Alex, just to pick up on the safety theme, uh, just wondering if there are specific actions or, or thoughts you have that you know, will be taken uh, to ensure that the combined entity here proposed is, is going to have similar you know, safety and reliability as, as Synovus. Is there anything you can add around that? Yeah, I know, Greg. I'm I'm happy to talk about that, and and I I think as you guys can tell, every quarter uh, I usually start out by talking about our safety performance, and uh, it is uh, the number one 
focus of, of this company. Uh, commodity prices can come and go, but our commitment to, to human safety and process safety is, is, is our number one criteria at all times. So, um, you know, as, as we get through this deal uh, and the deal closes, uh, everybody can expect that the exact same focus on human and process safety uh, that you've seen from us so over our entire history is is going to continue and, and we're going to ensure that we put the resources uh, towards it uh, to ensure that uh, we can deliver that that exact same uh, track record. Okay, great. And, and the second one really comes back to um, how we should be thinking about hedging policy again uh, you know, in the context of the new organization, very different integration prospects, but also kind of, you know, tied to that question will be is, is with, with, if you were to continue hedging, would it remain connected with storage optimization? I'm just wondering if you can dig into that. Sure. Maybe uh, Keith can, can start that and then John may want to weigh in. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, you know, when we look at, at hedging, there's kind of really two two different components. One is around kind of the optimization side of the business where we're really trying to capture value from our storage and our transportation assets. Um, you know, when we think about that, you know, really we're, we're seeing a, a value opportunity, you know, over a period of time or in different locations. And to capture that opportunity, we lock up, you know, both sides of that transaction. So, you know, from a financial side, we may lock it up, and then as uh, as that price settles, there could show plus or minuses. But when we actually uh, physically sell the barrels, we realize that on the net back side of things. So, so we actually see a uh, an uptick, and and maybe just a, a a key example of that was kind of in April, where you know our our barrels were selling for about four dollars a barrel. You know, we could have produced and sold in Hardesty for that price. We chose not to do that. We, we stored those barrels or transported those barrels down to the Gulf Coast and stored them there. And then, you know, come June or July, we, we sold those barrels and, and realized an uplift of, of almost uh, $25, $30. Um, in that transaction, though, we would have locked in the, the WTI components as well as the physical sale. And because of that, you know, if, if WTI settled at 35, we may have shown a realized loss, even though our netbacks were were materially higher than what they would have been in April. So, you know, when we think going forward, obviously uh, um, the combined entity uh, has a lot less exposure to the WCS WTI differential in Hardesty, um, so that becomes less of a concern for us. But but the combined entity still has, you know, exposure to WTI. So so maybe with that. John, if you want to pick up sure. on kind of our corporate hedging. So, Greg, I, th I think there's three, you know, answers to your question that I would give you. And I think Keith really touched on the first is part of this transaction is about us acquiring a number of other assets that give us many, many more options to take our molecules to market to optimize the value that we get for them. So you should absolutely believe that we're going to continue with the type of optimization hedging that, that Keith has just described. And, and for example, you know, today we would have about 10 million barrels of storage. You know, going forward, we're going to have closer to 16 as well as incremental pipes. So those opportunities, you know, are going to present themselves in, um, in increased ways for us, and we intend to take full advantage of that. Secondly, I would say that, you know, one of the major reasons for doing this is to uh, reduce the volatility in our cash flow stream. So sort of at a corporate level, um, you know, that becomes an inherent hedge, uh, or this transaction will become an inherent hedge uh, in how we manifest our cash flow streams. But finally, you know, I, I would come back to, you know, something that Alex and I have said, um, you know, time and time again is, is a underlevered balance sheet is the best um, way to hedge at a corporate level to ride through these commodity price fluctuations. And we've been really clear since we started talking about this transaction that, that balance sheet deleveraging is our number one commitment and you can expect us going forward, you know, to continue to prioritize the balance sheet on a free cash flow basis until we've reached a point that we're, uh, we're comfortable with our debt levels. Okay, terrific. Thanks all. Thanks, Greg. Next question comes from Prashant Rao with Citigroup. Good morning. Thanks for taking the question. I just wanted to uh, talk about the hedges just a little bit more. I, I appreciate all the color 
they do. And on the current program, though, and and I think you know the communications team, the IR staff at Synovus did a good job of of, of communicating this to to all of us in the MDN and the NBA native disclosures, highlighting that from TQ. But the current program, you know, how, how should we be thinking about you know how much volatility that might cause in FFO? Per share, you know, uh, next quarter, or I guess this quarter and next quarter, and, and and I guess you know, related to that question, you know, if I if we adjust for those impacts this quarter, it seems that, you know, the the core sort of FFO per share was was really mid forty cents per share, which I think speaks to the underlying quality of the asset base to perform in this environment. So just curious about that, you know, sort of thinking about how we should think about the remainder of this hedging program you entered into going forward over the next sort of call it four to six months and, and also sort of, you know, if that's the right takeaway there about the core reliability and performance of the assets. Yeah, Prashant, it's, it's John McKenzie. I think you're thinking about the hedge program the wrong way. And the hedge program that we've put in place um, locks in additional profitability. And my suspicion is you're confusing accounting treatment with, with straight-up economics. And you'll notice in this quarter we sold many more barrels than we produced, and we took the opportunity in Q2 to start storing barrels rather than sell them into the prompt market. And what we do is we lock in that contango along the curve so that we're locking in sort of a 4 or $5 per barrel margin um, by selling in Q3 versus selling in Q2. Now, if WTI rises by more than that, that 4 or $5 um, increment that the uh, curve was showing us back in Q2, we'll show a hedging loss. But the reality is um, we're not speculating in the market, and what we're doing is locking in incremental margin by selling in one period versus another. So don't get confused um, by the hedging uh, gains and losses. They really are a function of how WTI is moving in the marketplace, whether it goes up through one period or down through one period. But our hedging program is designed not to speculate, but to lock in incremental margin. Okay. But, but thanks for that clarification. Um, I think another question I had was returning to the, the transaction. Um, I appreciate that you probably can't give too much color around this right now, but um, when you look through asset monetization opportunities or sort of, I guess, you know, optimizing the portfolio, you know, past, post-transaction, post-merger, um, could you maybe help us to think about how you evaluate that, just sort of what's the, what's the construct by which you go through and, and, and you know, balancing you know, profitability versus, you know, synergies with the overall portfolio. Um, you know, specifically, I was thinking outside of the, outside of sort of black oil production, the, the, the bat portfolio that you'll have on a consolidated basis. Any color there would, would be helpful. Sure. Um, you know, anytime you, you put two companies of, of this kind of scale and, and uh, scope together, you're, you're, you're going to go through a process and, we have and are continuing to go through a process of, you know, determining what is core to this business and what is non-core. And, you know, as you can imagine, there there are a lot of criteria that kind of go in into into those decisions. But but really, at at the base of them, you know, it it is about the value those assets uh, can or can generate, um, and their strategic importance to to the company. So. You know, we will. I think people can take it as a given uh, that we are we we are going to proceed uh, to look at monetizing, you know, non-core assets that that are falling out out of this combination. And you know, and I, from my own from my own perspective, I mean, I, I think I, I I don't know that I'm I'm willing to share it right now, but I think we already have a pretty good understanding. Of, of the kind of uh, the kind of assets that we're going to take a really hard look at uh, in that regard, and, and we're also going to be cognizant um, of, of are they worth more to other are they worth more to other people? But and I think the other issue, you know, is is going to be is is the time right, and and can we actually transact at values that are are value creating for our shareholders? So, uh, you know, expect more from us on this. I think we're going to act. Uh, fairly, fairly quickly, and and uh, uh, just yeah. I mean, I, it, it's just going to take us a little bit of time 
to uh, uh, till we're at a point where we can talk a little more freely about it. Okay, appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. Next question comes from Phil Gresh with J.P. Morgan. Yes, hi, good morning. Um, I, I was just thinking about um, the rail contract that you have um, that you signed up um, a little while ago. I think it goes maybe till the end of 2022. And I, I apologize if you addressed this on the last call, but uh, what is around what happens with that um, once we get to the end of this period and, and now that you have the takeaway um, you know, the excess takeaway that, that Husky would provide. Hey, Phil, it's uh, Keith Chesson. Yeah, you're, uh, you're right that uh, some of those contracts fall off kind of at the back end of 2022, so we'll, we'll evaluate that at, at that time. Um, you know, what I would tell you is, you know, we, we quickly ramped down the program in, uh, in the first part of, of this year when commodity prices collapsed, um, but we didn't, uh, we didn't sit on our hands through that time. We actually... Uh, continued to negotiate around those contracts and um, and have been able to further reduce our, our variable cost on those contracts. And because of, uh, you know, some small investment that we made in, in the Bruderheim facility uh, last year, we're actually able to store a bunch of unit trains at the facility, which, which allows us to ramp up the program relatively quickly. So I think in the past we've talked about this uh, this overall program not lending itself to kind of quick ramp up and ramp down, you know, in, in the span of kind of less than six months. But we've, what we've been able to do is take a portion of the program and really have uh, agility and flexibility to ramp it up and ramp it down over the period of, of a couple of months now. So, you know, we will look at uh, kind of market opportunities to be able to do that um, at those reduced costs uh, for transport to the Gulf Coast kind of over the, the next couple of years. And then, you know, coming at the end of the contracts, you know, we'll kind of look at egress and, and how it's all shaken out, whether or not we would want to extend those or not. Right. Okay. Yeah, I guess my follow-up to that would just be with with your comments about having lowered the cost. Does, does this mean that the new transport costs that we've seen this quarter, which are lower than prior quarters, uh, is, is a function of that cost reduction given um, uh, you know, real uh, not being utilized, and then um, is, is this the right way to think about the go forward? Uh, and and if we go into, you know, for coming out of curtailment, do you think you'd actually maybe start using that rail as we move into 2021? Yes. So Phil, you shouldn't be surprised to see us use the rail kind of in, in the fourth quarter here. We uh, we are looking at starting up a portion of the program in November. It still enables us to to accumulate additional production credits versus having to acquire them in the market uh, through the supplemental production allowance. And then in December, you know, it really comes down to a uh, cost-benefit analysis. And with the cost reductions we've been able to achieve on the variable cost, you know, we can actually make this program economic to run barrels down to the Gulf Coast and realize higher netbacks. Uh, so you shouldn't be surprised to see us move some volume, obviously not the full program through the fourth quarter, but some volume through the fourth quarter uh, which will help improve our, our overall netbacks. Yeah, Phil, it's it's Alex. Just maybe one thing I'd add to that. It, it you know, this this uh, improvement in pricing we've been able to achieve is is really significant, and it's a it's a tribute to Keith's team, but but also our freight partners. Uh, they have been uh, uh, really good to work with in in making this a much more compelling opportunity going forward. And Alex. From a macro perspective, um, with the removal of the curtailment, do you, do you think the broader industry is going to need rail? I know, I know that um, you know, the, the commentary suggested not until mid-2021 um, in, in, as the decision point for, for, um, for why to remove the curtailment, but what's your view? Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I, I suspect, I mean, I, I, I think I've been pretty consistent about this, but you know, I think one of one of the very clear features of our industry is, you know, I think all of us have been very successful in driving costs out of our operation. And, you know, I I, I suspect with curtailment going away, uh, those barrels on the sidelines, be they, you know, sort of, you know, 200 to 400,000 barrels a day, I do expect them uh, to come back. And and uh, I I would not be terribly surprised 
at all to see rail. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think we're going to see it at where it was uh, a year and a bit ago, but I, as Keith said, you know, it, it looks like it's making uh, re economic sense for us, and uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see rail volumes moving up here over the, over the next few months. Great. Thank you. Next question comes from Manav Gupta with Credit Suisse. Hi guys, um, quarter over quarter, there was a lot of improvement in the net pack. Obviously the benchmarks were more supportive, but just trying to understand uh, what was condensate pricing a big headwind for you in 2Q, and as that kind of lag went away, you started closing the gap to the benchmark and that led to an improvement in net packs. If you could comment a little on the condensate pricing lag and how it helped you or hurt you in 2Q versus 3Q. I mean, it's, uh, it's Keith. You know, I, I think this is kind of a, a build on what John had talked about earlier and and kind of how we are trying to improve our netbacks by moving barrels out of one period into another. Um, you know, so so in the second quarter, we were able to store a lot of barrels. Uh, obviously, those the pricing, if we had to sold them in that quarter, would have been at, at uh, very low pricing. Uh, we stored those and moved those into Q3 quarter and realized uh, much higher realizations for those. So I think if you look at our sales relative to production, you can see, you know, an increase in sales in the third quarter relative to production. And, and that's really putting those barrels in the market in a higher price environment. And, uh, and that obviously all flows back into an improved net back for us. Perfect. Uh, a quick follow up here is we're seeing a very positive trend in transport and blending costs going down at Foster. Obviously rail is a part of it, but, uh, if you look at from 1Q where it was 1437 now all the way down to 860, is there anything else that you're doing at Foster Creek to push the cost down in transport and blending besides rail, which is helping you out? You know, Manova, I think you'll see uh, a lot of variability, uh, you know, quarter to quarter. It all depends on, you know, barrels that we move by rail, as, as you indicated, but also barrels that we move on pipeline and which which production we choose to move down the pipeline. So some some months and quarters it may be Foster, some months and quarters it may be Christina Lake. It all depends on how we can get the maximum value for our barrel, and and that will drive some of that variability in in transport costs. But but you know you, we are going to utilize obviously our assets to maximize that value. You're you're right that with rail off through the third quarter our transportation costs are down. Um, because of that, but uh, you know, we will use those assets to to, to capture incremental uh, value for the company. So so the, you will see a a bit of uh, variability quarter to quarter, asset to asset. And last question is uh, Enbridge Line Three replacement. Any color, anything you are hearing out there? Uh, do you think this could be a 2021 event? Thank you. You know, everything that we're hearing, Manav, um, is that they are marching towards, uh, you know, a 2021 startup. You know, obviously, uh, some critical decisions coming here in the November time period uh, around some permits, and, and that will then drive construction, you know, of that project. So we'll be watching kind of through the fourth quarter uh, intently, and if, if they get their permits uh, and start construction, then, then you know, we, we do think a 2021 startup is realistic. Thank you for taking my questions. Next question comes thanks, from Chris Cox with Raymond Jeans. Uh, thanks, guys, and, and thanks for taking my question. Uh, maybe, maybe just the first one, really in the quarter, just any comments on uh, why you didn't also record any impairment at Wood River and, and just anything that maybe differentiated um, that asset test versus what you conducted at Forger? Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's John McKenzie. One of the things we do with all our assets every quarter is assess for indicators of impairment. And obviously with, uh, you know, refining cracks dropping as precipitously as they have been and, and not recovering as quickly as they have, um, you know, we, we took that as an indicator of impairment in our downstream. So we evaluate both of those assets. Now, one thing I would say um, is that Wood River is a more complex refinery with, with much greater um, scale efficiency than we have at Borger. So, um, you know, the reality is when we looked at that one versus the net book value and, and we kind of ran it out on the discounted cash flow basis, uh, we got to the answer that, it is, that we did get to. But relative to the carrying value of, of Wood River, we did not have an impairment. 
Okay, thanks. And then maybe uh, circling back to, to the transaction with Husky here, just wanted to dig a bit deeper into some of the talk about kind of physical integration between FCCL and Lloyd Complex. And I'm curious how much of your diluent value chain you think you could integrate there. And, you know, I believe your current diluent supply is also tied to some longer term contracts on, uh, you know, Cold Lake and, and Polaris. And how do you think those contracts on those pipelines might play into those plans or, or even some of your other contracts for the downstream? Yeah, we're, we're right on the front end of this, Chris, and, and when we did our synergies and put out our targets, we were really clear that we didn't want to include any of that in our synergies. The $1.2 billion that we put out uh, as capital in operating synergies are really those synergies that we have a really high confidence um, that we're going to be able to get in a very short period of time. Um, so when you talk about the broader physical integration between FCCL and Lloyd through time, you know, that's an exciting opportunity for us. You know, we think that, um, you know, through time, Lloyd is going to be a very strategic asset. Um, and how we, um, you know, integrate that and work um, through the molecular inter integration, not just on FCCL molecules going into Lloyd, but, but condensate coming back, um, is something that we are working through today. But it's, it's too early uh, in our minds to be talking about you know, uh, future values and, and um, um, you know, magnitude of integration that's possible there. But it's really clear to us that that is a legacy asset at uh, Lloyd Minster, and it's going to give us a lot of optionality on the integration going forward. Maybe just I'll ask in a slightly different way. Do, to, to achieve that physical integration, do, do, it, will it require uh, negotiations with other parties between other than just you and Husky? Yeah, it, it will. Yeah. Thank you. Next question comes from Matt Murphy with Tudor Pickering Holt. Hi, thanks, guys. I uh, appreciate with the acquisition release laying out your uh, your carbon ambitions over the long term and that it'll take some time to, to work through firming up plans there. But I guess given the perception of oil sands as being more emissions intensive than other barrels around the world, and, and certainly appreciate that all oil sands isn't quite the same, um, but but given those ambitions, just wondering if you guys could provide a bit of a teaser on some of the things you're thinking about um, in meeting those ambitions, whether we're talking solvents, um, carbon sinks, or, or otherwise. Thanks. Yeah, uh, thanks, Matt. I mean, when when we came out with with our targets and our ESG targets in the spring, I mean, we, I think we gave a little bit of color uh, around that. And what I would tell you is, you know, we. We didn't come out with those targets until we had done a, a comprehensive economic and and uh, engineering analysis of sort of what options, not not just what what were possible, but what options were actually achievable within our business plan. We, we it, it would be pointless to come out with an ESG, ESG targets that uh, weren't grounded in the business plan, and so that that was what we did. And and if you think about it. You know, I, I would kind of say it's it's a little bit all of the above. That um, you know, it, we've obviously been a leader in solvent technology. Uh, I expect that uh, solvent technology will will be uh, a part of it. Uh, carbon sinks is is something we are, you know, we're looking at uh, carbon capture and, and sequestration. But you know, one of the things I, I and and you know, there may be you know, there could be an element of of uh, acquiring carbon offsets, but the the one thing I would say that I think a lot of people don't appreciate, um, you know, although there are a lot of projects that require capital, um, you know, whether it is a whether it's cogen, whether it is solvent technology, carbon capture, um, th there's actually we believe there are a great deal of of benefits uh, that we can reduce our our GHG intensity by changing how we operate uh, the assets. And uh, so there, there's actually a whole suite of a whole suite of things. And you know now, with with Husky coming on, um, you know there, there's not only how we operate assets, but what assets on a go forward basis get capital, and what assets don't get capital, and all of those uh, have the ability to meaningfully improve uh, the GHG intensity. Yeah, I appreciate uh, the thoughts there. If I may, in follow-up on a completely unrelated note, um, just on the approach to integration with the Husky transaction, I guess if I go back to 
um, the 2019 investor day, excuse me, for example, which I appreciate is, is rolled away at this point. Um, but I, I think the strategy at the time was to take advantage of accessing a healthy amount of refining capacity in the U.S. market um, rather than owning it yourselves for, for a sort of integration. Um, I guess, can you talk about what's changed there in the thinking? Was it just an opportunity with Husky that was just really hard to pass up? Um, or did something, I guess, change in how you're thinking about um, the value of integration, whether um, a read-through and how you're thinking about pipeline progression um, from Canada? Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a whole lot of things, but, it, you know, what I, I'd maybe go back to where my comments have been on integration from the start, Matt, and I, you know, I think, I think what I've been very consistent on, I've always said, look, I, I love the integrated business model. I, I looked at our, our competitors and said uh, it would be fantastic to have that kind of business model and take the volatility out of, out of our cash flow and earnings related to our exposure to Alberta heavy oil pricing. But, you know, when, when we looked at that, you know, like very in-depthly a couple of years ago, you know, at the time, um, you know, crack spreads were $18, $20, um, and uh, every refining or, or, or processing, upgrading business or asset we looked at was just extraordinarily uh, highly valued, and, and I'm just not very interested in, in picking off assets at, at the peak of the market. And that's why, you know, we, we came to a strategy at that time of focusing on, rather than on, on processing, of actually looking at, at opportunities to, um, you know, to get our barrels to market, you know, via logistics, via logistics uh, whether, it, whether it was pipe or rail, where we could achieve a global price for our, for our heavy barrels. And, you know, the, the obvious difference is, is since the pandemic, you know, you, you've, seen a, you've seen a situation where everybody's values have come down but if you look at the, the valuation metrics of, of the, the Husky merger, um, you would see, you know, if, if you kind of break that business up into an upstream and downstream business, however, however you do it, um, you know, that, that, that downstream 400,000 barrels a day of molecularly integrated upgrading and refining uh, to, our, to our barrels I mean, the, the valuation was, was absolutely uh, compelling. Yeah, I would just add to that, Matt. I think Alex used a really important phrase there called molecular integration. And that's what this, this um, opportunity really presents uh, for Synovus going forward, is the ability to have processing units that are tied to our molecules, you know, that consume the molecules that we produce. And I think that gives a whole different level of optionality as well as a whole different reduction of volatility going forward. So this isn't just about integration. It's about molecular integration going forward and tightening up our value chains and shortening up um, them to the extent that we can. Next question comes from Chris Tillett with Barclays. Uh, yeah, hey guys, good morning. Thanks for uh, taking my question. Just a quick one for me. Um, on the conventional side, it looks like you're you know, resuming some activity there in the fourth quarter. Um, and and the, my, the, my read is that it's just tied to sort of stronger seasonal pricing. Um, but just wanted to confirm that or, or see if maybe, you know, this was a sign of interest to, to pursue some incremental opportunities on the conventional side in 2021. Hey Chris, it's Alex. No, I mean I, I mean you you look at you, uh, we've obviously been very disciplined over the last few years with the deep base, and then you know given given gas prices uh, where we found them over the last two or three years, the the right decision was was not to put material capital to that asset, and you know this this is an opportunity, uh, you know with with gas prices as you've mentioned. Um, you know, we, we, can, we can lock up gas prices uh, for a few years at very attractive levels. Uh, it's, a, it's a short cycle. These are very, very high uh, IRR kind of drill-to-fill opportunities, and, and it allows us uh, to take that asset from a decline to, to basically uh, at, at keeping it at least flat uh, to modestly growing. Understood. Uh, thanks for that. And then maybe just as a follow-up, um, anything you can offer 
in terms of the role that those assets might play uh, in the, the pro forma company? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we, we I, I had responded to that question earlier about about asset sales, and I I think as everybody knows, uh, you know, we we took a really hard look a, a couple of years ago at whether there was you know whether there was an opportunity to monetize a portion of of that conven of that conventional business for Synovus, and you know, I I think you can kind of assume if if you put Synovus's conventional business together with Huskies uh, in a, you know, in a higher price uh, environment. I, 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 you know, we're going to take a really, we're going to take a really hard look at that. I think my observation today is even though the prices have come up, it, it's still a pretty tough market uh, for value, but I expect that will likely uh, improve over, over the, over the, the next little while, especially if prices stay where they are. So we're, we're going to, we're going to take a very hard look at that. Okay, great. That's helpful. Thank you. No worries. Next question comes from Neil Mehta with Goldman Sachs. Thanks, guys. Uh, twice in a week. Uh, so the I guess the first question here is, is maybe it's for you, John, given you know the Husky assets really well. But it, as you looked at you know the last couple of years of Husky, one of the challenges has been operational execution and excellence, and, and is that showing up in different ways and in both upstream and downstream in terms of, uh, of performance. Uh, as you look at those assets, um, do you think there are things Novus can bring to the table to kind of get them up to speed? And how do you, as you went through the process of, of valuing these assets, how did you take that into consideration? Yeah, it's uh, it's John, not Jeff, Neil. But, uh, <laughs> okay, I, 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 I thought I said John. Sorry, I didn't. didn't. <laughs> I think you might be 20 minutes ahead of yourself. No, sorry. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. Yeah. But uh, I tell you, this was a, an absolute uh, number one concern for for us. Alex has mentioned right off the top of this call that safety is always has been and always will be our number one concern going forward. So when we looked at um, you know this asset base, I would tell you that we had unfettered access to do our due diligence, and we have been um, at this for you know nearly six months. And, and I would say the diligence that was done um, on all aspects of these assets is really unprecedented in terms of my experience with the M&A market, um, particularly on the E&P side. When we look at the asset base um, that we acquired, um, you know. Everything on the upstream that is operated is, is really right in our wheelhouse, and it's it's right inside what we really do well as a company, and we are very comfortable uh, with the reservoirs, the conditions of the assets, the conditions of the commercial uh, arrangements over the top, and, and we think we can add value there, um, and we think that uh, that value can be realized in a fairly short period of time. As it relates to the downstream, you know, we took a lot of time to look at uh, some of the improvements and some of the um, changes that Husky has been making through time, all the way from um, new personnel coming into their operation, all the way through their, their safety process, uh, safety systems, as well as their um, asset um, condition reports, as well as reliability and safety practices. And I remind you, we have two directors on our board who are very, very deep in terms of um, refining assets and the operations thereof. So it's something we took our time on. It's something that was absolutely top of mind for ourselves and the board. I think we've done a thorough job of um, ferreting out uh, our level of comfort in this, and, and we're comfortable that on a go-forward basis, you know, we're on the right path and, and that we've... Uh, um, you know, satisfied ourselves that, um, you know, we're, we are not going to have these kind of uh, incidents going forward. Yeah, great. And and the follow-up here is, um, I, I had asked about this over the weekend, but I don't know if there's been a subsequent update to any conversations with either the ratings agencies or, or your, or credit investors about uh, how, how they view this transaction of pro forma way and whether this gets us the, the breadcrumbs to getting back to, to investment grade. You know, I, I can't speak for the rating agencies. They've all put out their, their comments now. And, um, you know, you can read into those what you will. But, um, you know, it's our expectation um, that we are sowing the seeds for a return to investment grade in short order. Okay. That would be Great. something that's very important to us. 
Thank you, John. Thanks, Alex. Thanks. Next question. Next question comes from Mike Dunn with Stiefel First Energy. Thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, not to uh, beat it to death, but uh, I did have a, another question on the, um, I guess, the hedging strategy around timing of your sales versus your production. Um, you know, maybe naively, I had thought that this was um, something that generally maybe some of the oil sands big players would would do based on their outlooks for, for, for um, maybe seasonal turnarounds for them and others. So just wondering, um, John or Alex, if, if, if timing of sales versus production was something that was strategically done in the past without hedging. And then a second part to that is, um, how did you weigh the cost benefits of delaying the sales of your own uh, equity barrels versus you know, locking in that contango by buying third-party barrels and delivering them later? Thanks. Yeah, uh, Mike, it's John. Listen, this is something we've always done. Um, but what I would tell you, um, you know, going forward is, is what is really important to us is maximizing the free cash flow to the organization. So what we look at is, is can we sell into the future using the assets that we have? And, and we have pipelines and about 10 million barrels of, of storage available to us to increase the free cash flow. Um, in any future period. Now, we do attach a cost to that. There is an internal cost um, of doing that, and, and, you know, that kind of approximates, you know, a few hundred basis points beyond our cost of capital. Um, but we, you know, we do that on a, a diligent and rigorous basis to make sure that, um, you know, we're maximizing free cash flow, maximizing returns to shareholders. Okay, thanks, uh, John. That's it for me. Yeah, the, the other thing I would say, Mike, is, is you know, this, this is not something we're speculating on. You know, what we're doing is taking what the market gives us in terms of the shape of the futures curves. And all we're doing is, is using our assets and playing along the length of that curve to maximize um, future cash flows for the company. Right, and, and John, uh, forgive me, there's been a lot of uh, quarterly press releases out, so if I missed it on the in the body of, of your uh, MDNA, did you guys quantify um, like all in, including the financial WTI hedging losses, you know, the net gain uh, from that strategy versus, I guess, timing your sales to be, you know, in line with your production volumes? Yeah, what we haven't given you is the net gain, uh, but what you see is the accounting in the MDNA, and, and, I, yeah. and I think that's what's causing the, the confusion is the mark-to-market on the financial components of this versus what the underlying physical business is doing. Okay, so you're keeping that number close to your chest. Okay. Yes, okay, thanks. <laughs> Next question comes from Harry Mateer with Barclays. Hi, good morning. Um, you know, first question, can you maybe talk about your intentions with the pro forma debt structure and if you have plan to have Perry pursue treatment for the Synovus and Husky bonds after closing and, and you know perhaps if so how you're going to go about doing that yeah Harry it's John again we're, we're, we're looking at all the options as around to your question around Perry pursue and um, you know I'm, that's that's something we'll uh, we're gonna have to get back to you on I'm not um, I'm not going to talk about that this morning uh, what I would say though um, is um, you know, we are of the view that investment grade is, um, you know, very important to this new company. It's it's one of the, you know, um, synergies that we, we believe, you know, haven't taken any value for, but we think it's really important going forward. So you can expect us to do, um, you know, everything required to get us back into that space. Now, what we've also committed to do, and we'll do this in, in the reasonably short uh, term, is we'll come back to you with, you know, a complete financial framework that would not only talk about capital structure and how we see debt playing into that, but it will also talk about capital allocation and, and the screens that we intend to run on that together with um, shareholder returns. But we want to do that in a comprehensive way rather than give you, you know, one piece of the framework or do it incrementally through time. Okay, great. That uh, Certainly that'll be helpful. Um, and then uh, apologies if I missed this um, 
you know, either on the call last weekend or earlier today, but have you guys talked about upfront costs to realize your synergy targets? And clearly they're a major driver of the deal, but I'm just wondering sort of how much cash you think goes out the door initially to actually capture those. Hey, Harry, it's Alex. Um, you know, I think the if, if you want to think about sort of the costs of, uh, of putting the two companies together, think about a one-time cost of just over about $500 million and, you know, that compares to the $1.2 billion a year of annual run rate synergies that, that we, you know, expect to largely get in, in 2021 and get the, the entirety of them in 2022. Thank you. That's helpful. Okay. Our last question comes from the media with Robert Tuttle with Bloomberg News. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, I noticed there was a, um, a permit or something uh, filed with the AER about a uh, DRU that's going to be built near your rail terminal, um, and you guys were looking at DRUs. Um, what, what's your outlook on that? I mean, is there a, a plan to perhaps have one there at the uh, a bigger operating one at your rail terminal? Hey, Robert. Uh, it's Keith Chasson. You know, we filed that uh, regulatory application just to give us the flexibility around that project. Uh, obviously, with the uh, uh, with the transaction that's that's underway, obviously we're we're taking a, another look at obviously the the DRU and and the location of the DRU. So, you know, that was just a a, a step in the process to make sure that we had uh, flexibility. Yeah, Robert, it's it's Alex. Just to be really crystal clear on that, we. We kind of said when we were looking at the DRU that we were going to do the engineering and permitting to give us the ability uh, to have the option uh, to go forward on a, on a DRU, and no one, no one should think about that filing as anything more than just uh, carrying through on, on, on that direction. Okay, thank you. No worries. And at this time, I'll turn the call over to Mr. Pube. I think that's the uh, the end of our questions. So uh, thanks everybody for uh, taking the time and enjoy the rest of your day. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.